Welcome to episode two of the Talking Adapted PE podcast. If you listen to episode one, thanks for coming back. If you're new here, what we do is we talk to everyday adapted physical education teachers to learn more about what their job looks like on a regular basis. In this episode, we've got another fantastic guest named Nicole McCoy. She talks us through the realities of being one of just three APE teachers to cover her district. She then goes on to explain how she uses switches to make PE accessible for everyone. After the episode, be sure to check out the show notes as they include Nicole's Twitter handle and a link to a Teachers Pay Teachers product that has some really useful visuals for adapted PE. To be transparent, I have no affiliation with this product whatsoever other than being a paying user. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. All right, Nicole McCoy, welcome to the Talking Adapted PE podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> um, today, we're going to talk about your role as an adapted PE teacher and what that looks like. And then we're going to finish off with a set of fast five questions. Does that sound good? Yep. Sounds like a plan. Awesome. Now let's just jump right into it. Um, I'm familiar with your work. I follow you on Twitter, candidly. I think you're a great follow. But uh, why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm in my 11th year teaching uh, strictly adapted PE. I'm in the school district of Lancaster, which is in Pennsylvania. Um, we're an urban district. Um, I work primarily at the secondary level, but there's three of us for the entire school district. So between the three of us, we're constantly traveling. Every day is a little different. Um, we each have our own self-contained classrooms that we teach. I have four multiple disability classes, um, two high school life skills classes, and two autistic support classes. Uh, and then I service students throughout the district in inclusion as well. So that's about, I think, the gist of it. Yeah. That's So how many schools, you said there's three of you for your district. How many schools does, does that mean like each of you on average cover? Um, ooh, yeah. I mean, sometimes we dip into each other's stuff if someone can't make something um, in a day, like I might go to five different schools, but in a different day, I might just be on campus all day. We have two high schools, um, I think 13 elementary schools, uh, and then four middle schools. So we have a pretty, pretty big district. Yeah. Well, that's what's so interesting to me. So, so my numbers, quite honestly, will probably like blow your mind a little bit just because obviously we're in San Diego, a major city, but we have 39 teachers covering over 200 schools. So, oh, um, <laughs> and, and ranging from um, the UT, uh, actually, I apologize. I got that wrong. Ranging from LM, uh, listen to me, my goodness gracious, preschool is what I'm trying to spit out right now, all the way up through um, uh, secondary as well. So, um I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Um, I think you're being a little bit modest, but your your Twitter profile lists a number of awards that you've won. You're a very accomplished teacher. Are there any that are there any that stand out to you that are extra special or anything? Um, I was um, the Shape Teacher of the Year. I couldn't. I can't remember dates. I think 2019 for like the Eastern uh, District. Uh, I was a local teacher of the year for my PE. Oh, wow, I can't talk now either. The PA State. Um, so those are like the two main ones. Yeah, I feel I rarely I'm like, oh, yeah, teacher of the year. I think it, it's great. It's a, it's an honor to be listed at that. But so many people are doing so many great things that I'm like, oh, I'm still learning and still humbled by what other people are teaching me. So no, I agree with you there. And it's it's always very awkward to be like, oh, look, look at the awards I've won or look at what I've yeah. done. Right? So, I, so that's why I had to put you on the spot a little bit. It was also actually, I'm going to ask you to maybe go a little bit deeper sort of you in your populations you teach, because you laid out quite a few variety of classes. And again, if I compare that to my own experiences, 
Um, we only have two designations in the San Diego City Schools. We only have a mild and moderate designation and a moderate severe designation. I think okay. we have a third. We also have a medically and physically challenged, but it's not at every school site, right? So that's why, and it's not at mine. So it wasn't on top of mine for me, but mm-hmm. um, but but I heard you run through a, a whole bunch from self-contained all the way up to inclusion. Can you maybe just go a little bit deeper on kind of what that looks like within your district? Yeah, sure. Um, our multiple disability classrooms are probably, I guess what you would say, you're more med- medically fragile. We have, um, we actually service uh, a hospital that has some of our students that aren't able to come into the school setting. So some of them might be on ventilators. Um, it's it's definitely that more like when COVID was very crazy around here, like they closed down basically the hospital and none of those students obviously were coming out to us. Um, so that is like the group where uh, we use a lot more assistive technology and the switches that all comes into play. Um, our autistic support classes are your truly yeah, autism based classrooms that are doing the more, they call it VB here, uh, where you're kind of doing like the tact and the manding and more of that. Cause we do have students with autism who are in life skills. It's just dependent on like their needs. So life skills is kind of more like that mod podge, I guess. Um, you have students with down syndrome with CP, uh, just more of like the intellectual disabilities present in there. And then it kind of differentiates from whether you need to be in like the more structured autistic support classroom. Um, and if you have more severe disabilities, the MDS classroom. Yeah. And I, again, I just think it's so interesting because I think in my own district that, you know, by only having the two designations, like there's a lot of gray area and kids would benefit from a life skills or an autistic support class or whatever it might be. And so I can tell you that within these classes, the range of abilities that we see is, is, I mean, it's just an entire spectrum as you can imagine. And so teach teaching can be tricky because you'll have kids that maybe have a consult level of support versus kids that are, you know, have higher needs and that you have to support at a higher level. So yeah. I, I'm i really fascinated by the layout of your district and would love it if my district would visit that, but I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. Um, I'm going to ask you to go back in time a little bit. I know we're all getting older and it's hard to remember, but um, everybody's credential program is a little bit different. What was your credential program like? Uh, I graduated from Westchester University in PA. Dr. Um, Lepore, right? Yeah, with Doc. Yeah. Yep. Great program. She was wonderful. Um, learned so much. So for her, um, my major, you major in regular health and PE and then adapted PE uh, is a minor that you can take from there. So you're required to take the mandatory course that kind of, you know, like touches you into the the realm of APE. And I feel like you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it type of thing. It's either for you or it's for not for not for you to continue down that path. But um, I think I think it comes out to about 18 additional credits for the minor. Uh, and then you have to get 200 plus hours of working like hands-on with students with disabilities. So whether it's like the program at Westchester was great because you have so many hands-on experiences, just like in-house. We had um, every Wednesday night, students would come to the gym and we'd have six gyms set up and kind of based on age or uh, like ability levels. And so you're there for a couple hours every Wednesday teaching and helping students either as a one-on-one or like as a group leader. Um, We had an aquatics program. You had the opportunity to coach Special Olympics. So I I feel like by the end of the program, people are like doubling and tripling those hours. We had camp abilities that people would volunteer at. And like, that's a whole weekend of, you know, and then if you go out of state to do a camp ability. So we really, there was no excuse to not have enough hours or time spent working with different, um, different disabilities and 
Um, so the program I felt coming out of that, obviously getting my first job in AP, I was a little scared just because you're a freshie coming into everything. But um, aside from like the multiple disability realm of things for me, I felt like pretty confident in everything. But when I first started here, working with students with multiple disabilities was very eye-opening because I was like, oh my gosh, I we didn't really learn much about um, assistive technology in my undergrad. So coming here, it took me, I'm still learning now, but within the first couple of years, I had no, no switches, nothing. I didn't even know it existed. So it's come a long way just learning how to still be teaching different disabilities as I am presented with them. But overall, the program, if anyone would ever be looking to, you know, do APE, I would say Westchester. There are some other good ones in PA. Um, obviously, I'm partial to PA, but um, other good colleges yeah, that have good really programs. But uh, and then we get to sit for the, the um the CAPE exam too, the APENS exam to get our CAPE cert. So I'm CAPE certified. And then I think uh, most people end up passing that exam pretty successfully because of the preparation of the program. So uh, here in California, um, I would say that I haven't encountered a lot of CAPE certified teachers. And so um, can you maybe talk about what that process is like? Sure. Um, well, in PA, we don't have, uh, it, it's not mandatory to have your CAPE cert to be able to teach. If you just have if you're highly qualified and have your HPE certification, then you're able to teach APE. But so uh, you sit for the exam and can be certified or for, I think, is it 10 years, seven? Oh, I can't remember now. Every every so many years, you kind of have to renew your certification, um, whether it's through like putting together like a little portfolio of saying like, I've taken these classes, I've gone to uh, these conventions and presented, you know, X, Y, and Z. Lancaster here, like I said, doesn't really, it doesn't, you don't need to have it, but all three of us have our CAPE cert. Um, it's just, and then now that we're all here and, you know, established, if we were ever to hire more, it's something that we would definitely want to hopefully see somebody have, just because I feel like it does, you seem a little more qualified than just some uh, regular gen ed PE teachers. Um, yeah, but it's not a mandatory thing here in PA unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's not in California either. Um, and so, but we, we do have a, you do have to have, um, you do have to be certified in adaptive physical education to teach it though. So um, okay. I know in New York, that wasn't the case when I was doing my student teaching and things of that nature. I think maybe that's why we don't see it as much is because we do have an actual credential for adapted PE. So I wonder if people just get that and then maybe, I don't know if they overlook it, but it's just not as common out here. So it's, that's interesting. Um, you know, one thing I've become really interested in is, and I just, I just brought it up was the, um, my experience in New York. So when I was in graduate school at Brockport, my student teaching experience for that or practicum, whatever we want to call it, I went out to a high school and the adaptive PE teacher at that high school just took the entire like self-contained special ed class. Like there was no like qualification, let's say there was no assessment process. There really wasn't. It was yeah. just that was it was basically it was basically specially designed PE. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't know in Pennsylvania or at least your part of Pennsylvania, if if, uh, if you can kind of speak to what your assessment process is and what that looks like. Yeah, that sounds actually kind of similar to how it works here. Um, so if there's a self-contained special ed class, we service that like they get a full APE class. They don't even you know, if, if you're in autistic support, I'm taking that class for my own class. And um, it's kind of up to me in a way to determine how often I can see them. Uh, since there is three of us, we're pushing for a fourth because I feel like we're just getting swamped with, you know, the amount of need in our district. But um, we can kind of have the power to build our own schedule based off of uh, cycle days, 
gym availability and that sort of thing. So some of it is kind of what we're able to fit in and still, you know, meet IEP goals and, you know, not be out of compliance with that. Um, but for us, it is, it's, if you're in a self-contained classroom, you're getting APE as a, as a class with us. And then from there, if you can be successful and safe in inclusion, then we might pull people and suggest that they get included then as well. Unfortunately, we're seeing a little more in our district, um, the push to include just to include. Uh, and some of that's not coming from us as professionals. And um, it puts us in a, a pickle because I would, I would hate to say that we're trying to exclude. It's not, that's not our job at all. And like, that's not something that any of us, myself, speaking for myself, it's not our goal to exclude anybody, but some of our students, it's just not a, a setting that can be safe and successful right now with the amount of paraeducators that are able to be present with how often we are able to be present. So that's an issue we're running into. But yeah, going back to how we assess if if a student isn't in a self-contained classroom, if they're reg ed or anything like that, then usually the general PE teacher might be like, hey, I have a student that I'm looking at that might need support. Um, and then if they come to us, we have a refer referral form that we'll fill out um, and send them and they just kind of observe for a, a day and let us know like, uh, this is some of the behaviors we've seen. These are their current skills and present levels. Um, these are some of the X, Y, and Z things that are making us, you know, refer them to you. And then from there, APE schedules an observation and we come out maybe a day or two to observe and just kind of sit back to see how class goes. And then from there, we, we make our decision based on whether they get serviced, how often, or whether we're like, uh, we don't really think they need it yet. Um, if we need to assess, we might do the TGMB2 more so at the elementary level. Um, at the secondary level, we don't we don't have like the rights to any of those. Uh, what are some of the, like the APs or the Brockport? I'm not sure which ones you have to actually buy anymore. But we don't own the actual tests to run them. But I I would like to say that we have enough of the understanding of what we're looking for. Um, by being familiar with those tests through undergrad, especially uh, that we know kind of what we are basing our decisions off of. It's not just like, oh, I choose you. I don't choose you. Um, they are, you know, data driven and based off of assessments. But TGMD2 is definitely the one for the elementary that we we certainly use a lot. That, that that was interesting to hear you walk through that process. It's just, and you know, that determining like those, like the TGMD2 or the TGMD3 now that's out, obviously, you know, it can just be really helpful to have the, that piece of data to help support your case, right? So, um, and, and everybody kind of goes about it a, a little bit differently. Now, from that assessment process, what what does that look like on the IEP itself when it comes to delineating hours? How does your district take care of that? You know, I'm not, as far as elementary, I haven't had, since I am mostly secondary, a lot of the experience as far as like what um, our other two APEs are putting in. Um, I know they're basically saying like, this is the equivalent, you know, doing all of the the math to kind of say like, this is where their age is falling, this is how they compare to their peers. Um, but as far as hours and services, it kind of still goes back to what we can safely suggest they get. I feel like for us, we're at a point where like even currently right now in an IEP, I might be seeing uh, a student at the high school who's in life skills five days a week, but I'm only putting them 
listed as monthly because heaven forbid something happens like uh, I'm still covered technically, and this might be not the right way to do it, but I'm still seeing them five days a week, but just to make sure things are in compliance um, and not spreading myself too thin, like we're listing things as monthly and then we're going past what we can and servicing weekly what, where we're supposed to be. But um, yeah, I feel like the more like you're bringing it up and I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, man, it's probably not the right way to be doing things at all, but it's... Uh, and it's been tough though, too. Um, the three of us, I think two times so far, we've put in um, proposals with data and graphs and showing like, this is how often we're missing, you know, inclusion students. And we put together a whole proposal to be like, is it possible to get a fourth person hired? And twice now, I don't know what's happened to those proposals, but it's been uh, shot down. But we're at a point where we're like, oh, we're just something's going to give a lot of our students in inclusion are, are, you know, we're missing out on them and only seeing them maybe once every couple cycle days, because it's just swamped with um, so many new classes forming and nowhere to really, you know, put that into the schedule. That was kind of probably not answering your question at all. I kind of went off on a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's, um, it's one of those things that, you know, uh, our district, we've actually had our hands left a little bit. So we, we actually list a yearly amount of hours on the IEP and that obviously averages out to be a certain amount of time each week. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we, when we've, in some cases we have had, you know, kids show up with the monthly or, or whatnot. Um, but our, our legal department has advised us to, um, to try to be, to try to be more specific as I'm, yeah. as I'm sure you can imagine, but you know, you, you bring up a lot of the realities of the job though. And that's, that's, what's great about these conversations is, you know, how do we, how do we strike that balance to make sure that we are legally fulfilling our job when the realities are, it sounds like your district needs another teacher to truly meet the legal requirements for these kids, right? So how do you present those strong cases? How do you get administrators to buy? And that's, those are some of the hardest parts of the job. Yeah, for sure. You brought up data-driven and you, it, this can just be a quick answer. This is actually a weakness in my teaching, to be honest with you. When, when that annual IEP comes up, I'm usually like, oh, they're goals. I got to check them. Right. You know what I yeah. mean? I didn't know if you, do you have a way that you're tracking goals that you think is pretty useful that you'd want to share? I, I'm just like a Google drive kind of girl. Um, anything that I do assessment wise, like I make my assessments on Google forms, that way, when I'm putting everything in, it's just all collected right there. Like I have the dates, I have the little pie chart that shows me any like breakdowns of stuff. Um, but other than that, and like the notes section, other than that, nothing fancy at all. That's probably probably the best way that I've been doing it. And I've only recently been doing that within like the last year or two because I was much more of a just like a type it onto my laptop in a Word doc and call the day. But I'm like, oh, there's got to be a better way. And Google Drive is probably still not the best option, but it's a little more organized for me and everything else in my life career. I had like my wedding and honeymoon stuff on Google Drive when we were going through that. So like everything is on the drive. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. But I would, if anybody gives a brilliant answer of what's working, I would look back at this and love to hear it because... Well, I'm, I'm hoping to compile people's answers and like put out a graphic eventually so that people can yeah. say like, you know, whatever, you know, their, their ways of doing things so that hopefully it can be, can be there for people. But, um, you know, on Twitter, one of the things that has drawn me to, to your page when you share stuff is, um, 
your use of switches. Mm-hmm. And um, that's an area I haven't delved into, um, probably partially out of insecurity and trying something new, quite honestly. But you've done some really cool stuff with switches. Can you maybe explain some of, well, one, people may not know what a switch is. I assume most mm-hmm. people do, but they may not. But maybe talk people through what a switch is and then some of the th- things you've been able to accomplish. Yeah. Um, so, and like I said before, switches weren't something that I was familiar with. So I really only use them with my multiple disability class. Uh, a switch is basically, uh, if you think of like a button or some sort of accessory that a student can use any movement that they have to activate something. Um, so whether that, which is like the amazing thing, and it's taken me 10 years to kind of get where I'm at and understanding everything. But like, if someone's able to only move their head or just a twitch of a finger. Like there are switches for everything these days. So if it's just eye tracking, if it's a tongue movement. Now, unfortunately, switches are just out the wazoo cost-wise. So I've written a lot of grants and stuff to try to get, you know, a supply of things. But uh, a switch can be plugged into an electronic. So something I use most often is a leaf blower or a fan, like a hairdryer, anything to kind of make a movement happen. So we've used them in all sorts of activities now, like volleyball, basketball, soccer. I think if you can kind of think of it, somebody or myself has, you know, integrated a switch to simulate like a student using the movement they, they do have in order to make like that bigger picture movement happen. Here at my high school, I'm very fortunate to have, um, we have a robotics class and a building trades class. And like the one year I was like, I don't have a mind for any of this, like how to make things work. Um, But I know that we have these classes. So I got the two teachers together and we collaborated on, you know, I was like, can we make something that kicks for students? Or can we make a baseball swing, like a device that's going to swing a bat? And, you know, working with them, they've integrated it into their classrooms to kind of make it something that their students now do as part of their class to like, if if I need, I don't know, what else do we have? We have like a catapult for like shooting or throwing. So I'll go to them and be like, here's an idea. I don't know what to do, but I know you guys can do it. And um, like the building trades will build the frame of it. Uh, and then those students bring it over here. Oh, we have two high schools. So they bring it to the other high school where robotics is and robotics sets up everything to get a switch attached and make it work. So without that, I'd kind of be, I don't know, I, I'd still be doing like leaf blower stuff, but they really helped build uh, things that have kind of made it more, I don't know, not just putting a leaf blower or a hairdryer in front of somebody and being like, all right, we're playing soccer today. But the leaf blower and hairdryer and fans, that's kind of, still use those daily and it's a great way to you know make a volleyball like go over a net and like float so that students can use their their arms or you know be mobile and still hit things um I feel like I ramble a lot <laughs> I don't know no you're giving uh, a lot you're giving a lot of great information it's great yeah, if, um but we here we have different types of switches I think so we we use mostly um switches that can be activated by the hand or the head uh, fingers. So we don't have anything too out there right now, like, uh, like eye gaze or like, a using your breath, like a sip and puff. Like I said, there's, there's a switch. If you can think of the, that, which is the coolest thing in my mind, like if you can look at a student and kind of like analyze them and be like, oh my gosh, like here's a movement. I've found it. I bet you there's a switch for it. So I've recently, because it's kind of like my, my passion now is like 
looking at a student and being like, all right, I know, I know there's something in you that we're going to make work and we'll, we'll find the switch for it. So if you haven't, if you're someone who's listening and you haven't, you know, ever delved into it, if you're a little shy, like you kind of said about getting started, it's, it's something that as soon as you, you find what works, it's just like a light bulb and it's, you just roll with it. It's been really fun. And I, I presented on it just this like late fall at a state convention and there's some folks, like you said, who, I mean, I didn't know about it until really recently, but I think it's a more up and coming thing. There's some great people on Twitter who are doing fantastic stuff with, with switches. So it, the information is out there. And I think once somebody starts understanding kind of the pieces that go into it, it it'll set the ball rolling for some great stuff. There are a lot of components that kind of go into it. And like I said, it's not cheap stuff, but um, I did just post on Twitter not long ago, maybe in the fall, some hacks that I had found on Amazon where like you could buy, it was like a remote control outlet that bypasses some of the more expensive stuff that you have to buy. So there are ways to kind of still integrate it without actually having to spend the money to do it. But even just starting simple with like a bean bag or something like that is a great way to kind of simulate, simulate that same thing, um, like that cause and effect type of situation where like, I'm going to put a bean bag by somebody's head. And your goal right now is to get that head to move just a little bit and hit that bean bag. And we're going to do kicking a ball as the effect. So it's, it's something where it's not like you have to go from zero to a hundred. There are little ways to start building up, but yeah, that was a long winded, winded answer. It is something that I, I find it really fun and fascinating now that I know more about it. Well, you know, the listeners won't be able to see this, but you kind of lit up as you were talking <laughs> about it. So it was, it was really fun. It was really fun to listen to you kind of, you know, we all have, we all have our passions, obviously, and that's clearly one for you. And it was really interesting. And um, for those of you, I'm going to have Nicole at the end, give her Twitter handle, but you know, when she gives it, and if you're on Twitter, you should head there because her, her media tab and her page is just filled with all these switches and the really cool, really cool work that she's doing. You know, other ancillary supports that we give kids, one of the big ones is visuals, but, um, it, you know, I just, I feel like there's hurdles to visuals, like board maker we use in our district, but it's not on Mac. So if you have a Mac, you can't use it. And then symbol sticks exist. I don't know if you've heard of that. I was just curious, do, do you use a lot of visuals? And if so, where do you, where do you get them from? I do use visuals and I, I'm kind of at a point where I feel like I have like a good basis to you know pull from i was always just a google clip art kind of gal um as far as i know i don't know if our district pays for anything and if they do ape doesn't know about it maybe that's something i should look into um i think our speech uh has like pet access to pecs um whether that's board maker or not um because i know i've seen like the big beautiful communication boards made um, around in some of the classrooms. But I, I would say the main thing that I just do is Google and see what I can find. I do have an app um, called like, I think it's AbleNet Symbol Overlay. And since it is, it's more of a switch-based app, but they have good clip art on there too. I, and it's a free app, but if you are using switches, it's something that you can like create um, layouts for the different switches you have but I've also just taken the clip art from it and put it into what I needed and I did have I, I don't know if it's lesson picks sound is on the tip of my tongue um, that was something that I had to subscribe to but I didn't use it enough to actually keep my subscription up so um, I wish I had some brilliant answer but yeah I'm more of just like a google or using um, 
you know, the, the free things that I do have access to. But yeah, I don't think our district has, I, not that I know of, but that's something I should look into, honestly, now that you're mentioning that. <laughs> you know, I, um, I, I can't remember the account name, but it was from Teachers Pay Teachers. And I found an awesome adapted PE phys ed specific one that mm-hmm. looked like a, an updated version of PEC symbols, a little more relevant, okay. a little more current. And it was only like six bucks. Um, and so I'll, I'll try to include that in the show notes after for people, if they're interested um, yeah, that's and, and that, and there, there was, there was, there was, there's yoga poses, fitness poses, obviously mm-hmm. locomotor, uh, obviously ball skills, those types of things. So yeah. no, I know visuals is one of those things. And it's like, I always feel like I'm scrambling sometimes. Like you think you planned out your visuals perfectly, but then you're like, oh, I need this kind of obscure visual. Do I have it? And you're like going through mm-hmm. your bag or whatever you keep them in, you know? Yeah. Or I've like had to like piece together things from something else and try to make my own visual, I don't know, like crop out something and be like, I hear this is what I'm going to come up with after just Googling what I could find. (laughs) I feel like we look like kindergarten teachers sometimes, right? Like we're cutting and pasting and you know, all of that. Um, So uh, where do you stay current sort of on best practices or what's going on in our field? You know, are you part of Nick Pete or do you, do you subscribe to any journals or is it just social media? Where do you kind of find best practices? Yeah, I, th- I would say like the big one is social media for me um, between Twitter and being in some Facebook groups. Um, I'm a big, you know, advocate for our state conventions, like um, our shape chapter. Uh, I've gone I think every year to our conventions I haven't yet ventured out to like one of the national ones or anything but I would love to to get that way but whenever there's a convention um, uh, our district's pretty you know understanding about like oh that's great great opportunity and they don't there's really no hesitancy for us to be able to go do that I I do because of having like the shape memberships uh receive journals now on in all honesty am I reading journals and you know that kind of thing no not so much but um it's really pretty much social media is the big one and then just being able to have the opportunity from the district to go to conventions kind of as they're popping up um and myself and the other APEs here uh we're we're always happy to present and I know for us here in PA um Adaptive PE isn't something that's really presented enough on. I feel like there's always a lot of questions and there's really never uh, enough sessions, in my opinion. <laughs> but um, I feel like even after a session, like I said, we just presented on um, assistive technology at our most recent one and my counterpart did autism and we had folks coming up asking, oh my gosh, like, how how do you do X, Y, and Z? And we're like, oh my, that's uh, that's a whole nother, you know, 180 from what we just presented, but we've had a lot of folks come to our district from local districts uh, just to observe our program. We're very fortunate to have like a true APE program here because a lot of the districts around us don't really have that. And I think it's a lot of general PE teachers doing an APE position. And then we also, our health and phys ed coordinator just went to a different district, but we do have a role here that's currently open. If somebody wants to come from afar and fill it, where uh, we had kind of like a HPE supervisor, so to speak, who would, she was fantastic. She would put out all sorts of resources, like daily and email form. And when we had professional development with her, she was always telling us like the new, newest tips and tricks. So it was great to have somebody in a role like that to kind of keep a bug in your ear about things. So hoping that gets filled again with someone just as passionate as she was. Absolutely. And it's interesting to just hear you kind of talk on too, you know, that, that in other districts, it might just be a gen ed PE teacher that's trying to fill it and maybe they don't 
have that background necessary. The the one thing I'll say to you is is I don't I don't know why the National Adapt P conference is only in California. That doesn't feel very national to me if I'm being <laughs> honest. And if any of them are listening to the show, I would say it to them as well. It does not. It does. But nonetheless, it is. Um, but you should consider coming presenting this the stuff you've done. I don't know how you would get switches across the country easily and all that, but obviously that yeah. can help. But you you should try to get out here sometime. That'd be great. I've gone to That'd a few. We ho- we hosted in 2018, I think, here in San Diego, and um, okay. it was a great turnout. And um, a lot of East Coasters have come out to present, so it's 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 been great. Cool. So yeah, um, we can do it. You should for sure. Um, all right, we're going to move into the fast five part. So this is just meant to, you know, just so you can give quick, you can give as long as an answer as you want, but, it, you know, don't feel like you have to, and okay. hopefully nothing catches you off guard. But yeah. all right, favorite piece of equipment? Oh, um, I would have to say, well, see, because I have such a variety, I would say for my multiple disability classes, can't go wrong now having a switch, you need that. But I'm a straight up, like, I need poly spots give me a good Hmm. poly spot or color-coded anything that's what i need in classes perfect i know i feel like we uh we live and die by those poly spots right yeah (laughs) um what on the technology side what's your favorite app to use when teaching you know i'm thinking of this i i'm very guilty of not probably integrating enough technology um so i can't say that like every day i'm using something but i what i've used the most is and it's not some there are apps for more of like the sensory things but like pulling up on youtube some of like the uh, more for like autistic support and my multiple disability classes like the cause and re- uh, effects of like i don't even i'm using my hands and no one can see me i don't know like the different um sensory like the way the lights are shining differently and uh i don't know if that makes any sense at all does that make sense yeah you're going out <laughs> you're using you're using technology to help kind of augment what you're trying to do teaching wise yeah. right you know to bring yeah. that in yeah, awesome. I, my, some one of my goals right now with technology is uh, back to like this is, is finding a way to integrate almost like an arcade style game so that a student can kind of be simul simulated in a game and hitting their switch and playing like that too. Um, I, but that's very something that I've just only recently been looking into. Yeah, there's some um, when I served that population for a brief time that I, I knew of a bowling one. I think that existed where they could hit the switch and the bowling would then go on the screen. So, okay. I don't know. I'd have to look that name up for you, but all right. Yeah. What is, what is your best teaching since we're all on a budget? Let's be honest. What's your best teaching purchase under a hundred dollars? Well, and I I'm stuck on the switch and I'm a big switch girl. So you can get a good switch for a bit, like between 60 and 70 bucks. Um, that'll get you started. Or you can do the hack that I was suggesting, uh, the, like the remote control outlet, which, bypasses like $400 worth of equipment. Um, and that was, I think like 20, 21.99 on Amazon. Um, and I bought out of my own pocket, I bought like four of those. Cause I was like, this is, I'd much rather have these than have to try to write a grant and, you know, spend $500 on more switches that are going to take forever to get. So, um, that remote control outlet, I don't know if I need it, but like it's, it has like a plug that plugs into an outlet and then you can plug, let's say, your fan into right into this outlet that's like a smart outlet. And then there's a little, um, almost looks like a little foot pedal type of button, mm-hmm. but like somebody can push that down and it activates what you have plugged in. So it, it is essentially a switch, but much cheaper, cheaper version. Hey, we were all about those hacks. We are all about yeah. them for <laughs> sure. All right. One thing in your teaching bag that you just can't live without. 
Oh, my teaching bag. Um, I live out of my book bag. In my book bag, I always have Velcro, duct tape, um, some of like the double-sided, it's not really Velcro, but it, like if you put it around like a, an extension cord, it'll stick to itself. I can't think of what that's called. Um, but those are probably the three things that if someone was ever like, why the heck you have this in your book bag? And I'm like, well, I just used duct tape today to duct tape a hockey stick to one of my students' crutches. So this is like those little things that I'm like, oh, don't worry, it's in my book bag. So duct tape, Velcro, and maybe a TheraBand is in there too for, you know, if I need something to kind of strap something on. But Plus all your paperwork and your laptop, we just throw yeah. it all in, right? We well, just throw yeah. it all in. When I say uh, I live out of my book bag, I live out of my book bag. <laughs> um, So... I remember I came up with this question because I remember when I when I started teaching and I, I think back to that and I remember my head spinning. So, you know, I'm hopeful that people listening to this are probably veteran teachers like yourself, but maybe some newbies. So what's the best piece of advice you'd offer another APE teacher? What, what did I wish I knew when I started? But I, I would almost say, like, don't underestimate what you are capable of doing as a teacher and what your students are capable of doing. There are some times where I feel like, not that I underestimate, but like I'm planning to think like, oh, like we're, we're going to go this easier route. And my kids are like, oh, they far exceed. So keep that bar high for yourself and, you know, your students. Um, and don't ever stop trying to fight the good fight. Um, it's well worth uh, I, I haven't had to personally deal with any sort of uh, like litigation or that kind of thing, but like, I know there's a lot of that out there. And even in our own district, there's some stuff that goes on, but um, it's all worth, worth the battle to know that like your students are, whether it's being included or having the same opportunities. So it, fight the good fight because your students are worth it. And don't, don't stifle your creativity. I think that's one of my favorite things about the job is showing up at a school being like, oh, today you're playing soccer. I'm going to go look in your closet and we're going to take these three things that I found and we're going to put it together. And this is how we're playing soccer, soccer today with a student. So keep that creativity alive and, you know, your expectations high for your students and yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's just such a great piece of advice. I tell people all the time, we have the, we have the best job in education. Like, I don't think it's even close to be honest. Like, I, I just think it's great. So oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, well, Nicole, listen, I, I think you've, you've said it all. You've said everything I think about the field, what your job looks like. It's been a ton of fun, but where can people find you if they want to learn more about the work you're doing or if they want to connect? Yeah, my my Twitter, I'm really just on Twitter. I don't know if there's other outlets. It's not like I'm on LinkedIn or anything, but if you reach out, I'm on Twitter Twitter at nmccoy with an underscore A-P-E. Um, Nicole McCoy, you're always welcome to reach out. Uh, I welcome questions and I'll help as best as I can help. Or if you have, you know, ideas that you're like, oh, like you're using switches, you should try this or, you know, anything like that. I love to keep, to keep learning myself. So would love to hear from you. All right, Nicole, this was a ton of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.